Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. This episode of the Human Experience Podcast is brought to you by Fine Mindfulness. Mindfulness these days is huge. Mass media is starting to understand the benefits of taking time to pause and reflect. Have you ever been interested in mindfulness and meditation? Have you ever wanted to create a practice, but you just fall off track? Well, this is where Fine Mindfulness comes in. They offer a community that will help you create those powerful lasting habits that keep you training your mind. Whether you are the CEO of a Fortune 500 company or a college student running a startup, Find Mindfulness can help you. Find Mindfulness is a 30-day program. How often are you looking at your cell phone? Just ask yourself how often you look at your cell phone and then tell yourself that you need to take this course. Mention the human experience. Go and sign up right now at www.findmindfulness.com. What's up, folks? This is our episode with Dr. Louis Mel Madrona. He is a neuroscientist, and they are doing a lot of really groundbreaking work on how the idea of creating stories affects how you deal and cope and heal with trauma. So um, I think you guys will enjoy this episode. It's an interesting one. Uh, Please make sure that you sign up for our contest if you haven't done that already. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube. Thank you guys so much for listening. The human experience is remapping the neural networks in your brain as we speak to my guest, Louis Mel Madrona. Louis, welcome to HXP. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, Louis, if we could just start this conversation by kind of getting into your background, your education, how you got into this work, I think that would help lay the foundation. Sure. Um, I attended medical school at Stanford and um, got a Ph.D. in neuropsychology, did uh, residencies in family medicine, geriatrics, and psychiatry, and uh, then got a master's degree in narrative studies. And uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, I grew up in an indigenous context. So I grew up surrounded by stories. 
and it was amazing when the two threads converged, when I discovered that there was a neuroscience of story, and that academics and scholars were talking about story in the same way that elders and Indians talk about story. So that was pretty exciting, and, and that really led to this book, Remapping Your Mind. Yeah, if I could just read a passage from the book here. Um, we are born into a world of stories that quickly shapes our behavior and development without our conscious awareness. By retelling our personal family and cultural narratives, we can form the patterns of our own lives, as well as the patterns that shape our communities and the larger social worlds in which we interact. I mean, why why is this so important in in the way we interact? And I mean, how does it affect our learning so much? What have you discovered? So our culture turns everything into nouns. We give people labels. We say, okay, you're a bipolar. You're a PTSD. You're an anxiety disorder. You're a schizophrenic. And going back to story returns everything to verbs so that you're embodying the experience of being anxious or you're embodying the experience of being fearful. And it's much easier to envision change when you're dealing with a verb than it is when you're dealing with a noun. So, so by turning things back into stories, which they were in the first place, then we can imagine change much more readily. We don't feel stuck. We feel like we have some capacity for action, some sense of agency, that we can do something to alter our lives and, and the world that we live in, that we can have an impact on the world. What is, what is the identity narrative that you speak about in your book? That's the story that we tell ourselves and other people about who we are. So if I ask you, hey, who are you anyway? Then the story you tell me is your identity narrative. And of course, it varies depending on the context and the audience. You'll tell a different story if you're applying for a job than if you're on a first date. So um, we have a, a repertoire, we have a stockpile of vignettes that we pull out to create an identity narrative, and they differ. So, so we try to match who we are to the context so that we're who the audience wants us to be. We're who the other person expects us to be. Um, you know, and, and the more skill you have in doing that, uh, the more your social relationships tend to go well, tend to go smoothly. So, um, but from this perspective, there's not a fixed self. There's, there are multiple selves that can be created in any given moment for any given situation based on all the vignettes of our lives. So then would you say that each person has a different story that we tell ourselves based on the context of any given situation. So the way that I see myself in a personal way is different than the way that I would construct myself in the external world, right? Right, right. When you're, when you're sitting at home with your partner, 
you're a diff- you have a different sense of yourself than when you're on the radio or um, at a bank or at a professional conference. That we, we pull out stories to support the identity that we're expected to be, the role that we're expected to perform. And, and, and we tie them together to create an identity in that context. So we have an identity as parent. We have an identity as child, um, as coworker. And, um, some, you know, there's, there's subtle differences, sometimes large differences in the, in these identities. And, and mostly we navigate through them in seamless fashion. When we don't, then we have self-world friction, self-world interface friction. Mm-hmm. Sparks fly, and things don't go so well. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people get labeled, they get diagnosed, and um, get told that they need treatment. How do we use this narrative to address healing and to address illness? So in, in its most simplistic form, uh, I'll give you an example from my mother. My mother has a story that says, ladies don't sweat. Now, my mother was born um, into poverty, uh, coal mining country of southeastern Kentucky. And it was her dream to become a lady. And thanks to Berea College, which gives free education to Appalachian youth, she got to do that. So once she was graduated from college, it was her steadfast desire to never sweat again. She could go, but she would not sweat. So fast forward 60 years later, my mother has to have her aortic valve replaced. And She's sent home with a piece of paper that says, come to cardiopulmonary rehab. We will make you sweat. So what does my mother do? The first thing when she gets home is to hide that piece of paper in the bottom of her cabinet. No one's going to see that. No one is going to make her sweat. Now, I happened to find it, and I showed it to her, and and. It led to an intense case of the vapors. I don't know if you've ever seen the vapors, but it's a southern illness in which the person puts their arm to their forehead and says, oh my, I feel faint. I must go to bed. So um, so consequently, my mother didn't have as good an outcome from her aortic valve surgery as she could have mm-hmm. because she would never go to rehab. And And... Simplistically, again, people have stories about food, and some of those stories don't work really well if you're a diabetic. I've met people that that will not change how they eat because it's more important to them to eat with their family and to eat what their family's eating than to die of diabetes. So our stories are are powerful in our health, and I and I think. We, you know, um, Barbara and I, my co-author in the book, we we take it further, and we play with the story that the illness would tell about the person it's living within. 
because we think that it generates metaphors that help us to understand the illness. So, um, so let's say that you have hip pain. Um, so here's somebody I worked with recently. And so we got hip pain to talk. And hip pain turned out to be a, a, a grumpy woodchuck, grumpy old woodchuck. And this grumpy old woodchuck said, you're just always driving me. You're just always making me work. You're just always pushing me to the limit. You never take care of me. You never get any pampering for me. I want some pampering. Give me some pampering. You know, stop trying to, to force me to get better. So, so the question, you know, to the client was, well, so does that make any sense? And he said, well, yeah, you know, I, I, I really haven't been going for any kind of treatment. I've just been trying to ignore my pain and just push through it and visualize getting better. And, and, and um, so I said, well, what about, you know, making an appointment with an osteopath? He said, well, I guess I could try that. So, so once he started getting worked on, he started getting better. But he, but so his his pain had a story about him that was quite accurate and annoying to his pain, and he had a story about his pain that was quite accurate for him and annoying to his pain, which was, you know, by God, if you've got a pain, you just push through it and tell it to get better, and pretend that that. It's not there. So um, it took negotiating that story with both the pain in him for him to go get help and for the pain to start improving. So if I'm understanding this correctly, so that the narrative that I tell myself through a story can determine whether I am healing or not healing. Yes, because it, it reflects, it's the stories that you live by. So we tell ourselves stories about how to live. What are the virtues that we should follow? Um, what does a good life look like anyway? And what am I willing to sacrifice for a good life? So I have a, I have a nephew who's, who's visiting right now, and he's in college. And he's not exercising, and it's not very good for him. And he knows if he exercises, he'll stop feeling depressed, and he'll get his work will improve, and everything will go better. But his notion of exercising is that he should run 10 kilometers in the freezing cold outside in Montreal, where he goes to college. So, well, that doesn't sound like fun. So, but that's his story about what exercise is. So, um, my wife has been saying to him, well, why don't you go to the gym and like in the warmth, in the nice warm gym, why don't you walk on a treadmill and watch TV while you're doing it or read one of your books for school? That could be exercise. You see, and, and so he, because he has an, an extreme story, <clears throat> that only running outside in the middle of winter in, in cold Montreal qualifies as exercise. He's not doing any. So, so he, needs, he needs a kinder, gentler story 
about exercise than the one he has. And, you know, it, in, in, in psychiatric conditions, which I work with to, a, to some degree, um, we have stories about how to get what we want from the world. And you could, you could think of them as strategies for how to move around in the world. If your strategy is to throw a tantrum, that might always work. It might backfire. Um, if your strategy is to never say directly what you want but to make hints, you might never get what you want. It might be really frustrating. So, so, so this, this seems like something that is pretty cutting edge. I mean, has cognitive neuroscience kind of picked up on what you guys are doing, or are people still oh, kind yes. of understanding this? No, there's a whole, there's a journal even called the, the Neuroscience of Fiction. And uh, it's published out of the University of Toronto. And um, neuroscientists are really excited by this whole idea of narrative. It turns out that there's a circuitry in the brain that does nothing but produce stories. It's the story brain. And, you know, it, it, it runs along the midline from front to back. And it's what we do on idle. It's also called default mode network. So when our brain is on idle, we sit around making up stories about other people and what they want and what we want from them and how to get what we want from them and how to talk to them to get what we want from them. And I know that anyone listening who's ever commuted can relate to this. So if you're, if you're going home on a train or if you're driving home in a car or walking home, riding the subway, you're thinking about who's at home and what the condition was of the relationship when you left home and you're fantasizing what you should say when you get home. Maybe you're trying to decide whether to pick up flowers, Chinese takeout, chocolate, or to stop off at the pub for a pint before you brave the slings and arrows of home. Right. So, um, but we're all doing that. That's what our brain does on idle. It, it turns out that to turn off story brain and to turn on, say, meditation brain burns more glucose, involves spending more energy than just sit, sitting around making up stories. So, I mean, um, the, the event indexing model, and that, you mentioned this in your book. I mean, if, from what I understand of that, it, it kind of indexes all incoming actions into five indexes. Can you get into that a little bit? Yeah, and, and people are thinking that there's probably more or less than five. You know, and it's probably unique to each person. But yeah, when, when things come in, we need to quickly sort them. We need, and we need to compare them with um, experiences we've had before and how those experiences have turned out. And so, I mean, the, the obvious example is if, if you're standing on a hilltop and you see someone on the next hilltop, you need to quickly figure out if, if they're friend or foe. Are they for me or against me? Because if they're against you, you might want to run. And if they're friend, you might want to walk over and shake their hand. And so, so you know, that's a really basic category, friend or foe. 
um, that we can sort events into. And um, we, we can sort events into um, probably pleasant, probably unpleasant, probably neutral. We can, we can sort events into of interest to me, of no interest to me, you know. Um, so we, we do this kind of glossing really quickly because we have to make quick decisions. And we have this, this sort of storehouse of, well, I would call them stories. I mean, some people call them, you know, memories. But they're memories that are, are stored, memories that exist as stories. And, and we know how things turned out. So if it looks like a particular event that's already happened, if it's starting to look like that event, then we jump to conclusions and say, well, that's how it's going to turn out, so I better run away. Um, now, sometimes we're wrong, and we miss out on great opportunities. And there's, you know, there's stories about that. It's a classic movie plot, right? Is, is girl meets boy, um, boy likes girl, girl jumps to conclusions that boy's no good, um, boy fights to convince girls that he's really good, uh, <laughs> Girl changes mind and marries boy. I, you know, I just saw that the other night in Bollywood. There was a great Bollywood movie called Bride and Prejudice, which was a Hindu remake of Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> you know, it was it was just fabulous. You know, the whole village is dancing and singing. You know, it's like musical um, comedy at its best. But that was the plot, and um, you know, it, it's. Um, it's so, a I mean, that, that leads into my next question. How does, I mean, how does, as a casual observer, how, I mean, how do we, when we look at um, narrative-based entertainment in our culture, I mean, it's obviously based on stories. So, I mean, how, how would you say that our, you know, media and culture are either helping or tr- detracting from this sense of identification within ourselves? Well, I think that we're we're surrounded with stories, good and bad. We're surrounded by stories that are uplifting and positive, and we're surrounded by stories of war and 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 um, you know, there's the whole rhetoric of hate that we're hearing now on the campaign trail. And so I think that the media has every option for us, and we have to decide what stories we'll pay attention to that, that, you know, that it's up to us to tell good stories. And, um, I, I do a group for, um, people with chronic disease. And this morning, a couple people in the group, one woman was telling about how she got from living in a van with her 10 month old baby to being employed, having a home, having three children, and having a uh, and going to school, which is an amazing shift. <clears throat> she accomplished that over the course of five years, and that was a really uplifting story. It was a really inspiring story about the discovery of self-agency and about um, meeting people who believed in her. And listening to them 
and taking their help and running with it. And um, and we know, you know, so many stories that, that if one is in medicine, one gets to hear so many stories that aren't that inspiring in the emergency department, for example. And, and then the person immediately who came after her um, was a young man who told an amazing story about sitting around uh, with nothing to do drunk on the res- reservation. And somebody sent him a plane ticket to, to come here to Maine. And, and he did. And he got here in a snowstorm. Um, he came from a warm climate. He got here in a snowstorm with shorts, sandals, and a T-shirt. <laughs> and um, since then, he, start, he taught himself how to design websites. He's making YouTube videos. He's um, being really successful as a dancer. Um, he's, he's gotten married. He has two children. He's turned his life around. And that's really inspiring. Yeah, you know? I mean, it is, it is really intriguing. Sorry to interrupt you there. No, um, no. I just, I mean, if we could just get into the science of it, I mean, what is happening in the brain? What parts of the brain are being activated as we access these stories in our minds? Well, you know, we're, when we visualize the story, we're using, of course, visual cortex and visual associational cortex, and we're, we're using the posterior cingulate and the precuneus to put together, you know, kinesthetic memories with the story and, and feelings, in essence. We're, we're using our motor cortex to imagine moving as we would move in, in the story. Um, we're using our temporal pulse to, to give other people beliefs and, and intentions, desires. <clears throat> and, um, you know, we're um, monitoring the, the, our, our gut. You know, our brain is sending the whole package to our gut, which is monitoring the whole story and giving us feedback through its reactions to the story. So when we say that something is gut-wrenching, we really mean it. Mm, yeah. Or that something makes us sick to our stomachs, we really mean it. So, and, and so positive stories are sending back happy hormones, you know, to simplify, you know, in tasty endorphins and, and endocannabinoids. And, and um, traumatic stories are sending back, you know, catecholamines activating the sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight nervous system. They're, um, you know, producing corticosteroids, the, the stress response hormones, um, they're, they're giving us extra insulin so we can run. So it's quite a different experience, you know. The, so, I mean, uh, it seems like a lot of this is incredibly dynamic in the sense that we can go back into our minds and change the way that our memory exists about an event or an experience to reframe it into a sort of positive context and thereby institute a sort of healing mechanism? Absolutely. And, and we do that quite naturally. And I, I have an example of a friend who did that. She's a, a, a comedian and a storyteller. 
And to her chagrin and embarrassment, she got taken in by one of those Nigerian scams and sent money to the um, wire that they give you, you oh, know, no. to send. Yes. She was mortified when she found out what she'd done. She just felt like she was the stupidest person on the planet. And so she kept telling the story and, and making it funnier and funnier and funnier until she finally performed it as a storytell- at a storytelling event. And the audience was in stitches. The audience couldn't stop laughing. Every other line was a punchline. And, and everyone was laughing with her. And it, it was such a beautiful example, I mean, a, and a simple example, a lot, you know, but, but similar to what people do for, for more severe trauma. Maybe they don't make it quite as funny. But, but you know, she had metabolized her shame and her um, embarrassment into humor. And it was just incredible to see her a week later performing this story that was so incredibly funny about you know, the money that she gave away to the Nigerians. <laughs> and so, you know, people who have been uh, terribly traumatized, say in war, you know, there's something called narrative exposure therapy where, where a peer listens to them tell the story until it triggers, it doesn't trigger anything anymore. It's just a story. So they just keep telling it and telling it and telling it until the the emotional component is gone. It's just it's just a boring story, and um, then they can move on. So, I mean, I really want to ask this question, and I think this is important. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of research right now that is kind of coming out with the use of psychedelics, psilocybin, and ayahuasca to kind of treat PTSD, MDMA assisted therapy what is what is your opinion on that and what is your stance on that in regards to the research that you're doing well i've i've read some of this work and i think that it's potentially positive in the sense that what it seems to do is that it jars people loose from the story that they've grown accustomed to that they've grown attached to and um, I have a colleague at the University of Arizona who studies psilocybin for obsessive compulsive disorder. And when I read the descriptions of some of his subjects, it sounds like what the psilocybin does is it completely shifts their point of view. And they, they exit this rigid mindset and can see things from another framework. And I think if, if, if you're working with a skillful therapist who's, I think that can be positive. I, I think it could be dangerous if you're doing it on your own um, because we need a scaffolding if we're changing stories. Typically, we need a scaffolding to, to hold us up right. during the transition. And without that scaffolding, things could, could fall apart and come undone, I think. But... Um, and I, I, I remember reading some of the early LSD research, and it was certainly um, promising as a possibility, though it quickly got shut down and, and never to see the light of day again. But, um, you know, there, there are these possibilities. And I, I think, 
Ketamine may do some of that. Uh, it's a, a intravenous treatment for severe depression mm-hmm. that's being done in some hospitals. And my sense is that when it works, it dissociates people from their habitual story mm, yeah. long enough that they can see the world differently. Wow. And then when it's over, they can, they've had the experience of having seen themselves from a different lens, from a different standpoint. Right. We've established that a narrative, our, our unconscious and conscious narrative, is completely essential to our healing and um, how we progress through you know, our psychological disorders, our physiological disorders. I mean, in your opinion, what, what can a person do that is perhaps listening to this show right now to, with a problem that they may be struggling with to kind of help themselves or a short technique that you could give someone? One of my favorites is to take a problematic situation and write about it, with, but in the third person. So we get stuck when we journal in the first person and we say, I think this and I think that, and they did this to me, and et cetera, et cetera. Put it all in the third person. Once upon a time, there was a man who worked in a hospital and had an argument with the cafeteria, (laughs) you know, about not having gluten-free bread. Or, you know, and and so when when we write it down in the third person, Lots of times we can we can see things that we couldn't see when we were just thinking about it in the first person, and and there's another technique that that is rampant in children's literature, which which gets gives us even more distance and perspective, which is to turn all the characters into animals, and so make the grumpy cafeteria worker into um, an a hippopotamus. Art. A hippopotamus, absolutely. <laughs> You know, and and what do you want your character to be? You know, are you a coyote or a woodchuck? Are you a raccoon? Um, what what jumps out for you today? And and um, sometimes that that's just amazingly illuminating in terms of un, of seeing it differently. You know, stepping out of the rut and and. Um, taking a different look at the situation. You mentioned heroes, the hero of a story. Why is that so important to the story? Well, um, the, the hero's journey... Um, Joseph is, Campbell. But Joseph Campbell. Um, it's, it's thought by some neuroscientists to be a metaphor for adaptation. And so in the hero's journey... Um, thing, things are going along fine. Everybody's happy. You know, nothing much is going on to ruffle anyone's feathers. And and suddenly, things change. You know, Gandalf shows up to, to talk about um, horrible things to come. Or um, Luke Skywalker's parents are murdered by stormtroopers. Or... Um, white people show up on the coast of Maine or um, something changes. Captain Cook appears. And, and so um, then, 
the hero's journey is about how the hero responds to that event and restores harmony to the world, to the world around him or her. And and so the the key the key element in the hero's journey is that the hero has to do something. The hero has to has to have agency. And agency is incredibly correlated with mental health and with physical health. So when we have agency, we take action because we believe that our actions will improve things. And when we don't have agency, we tend not to do anything because nothing matters anyway, and whatever we do, it won't help, so why bother? And, and, and hero, the hero story also, the first action doesn't always succeed. So sometimes we have to try, try, and try again. Sometimes we have to go get help, like Luke Skywalker goes to Dagobah to study with Yoda. Um, we have to do something to strengthen our position. And all of these things are about adapting to adverse circumstances that have suddenly appeared, whether it be adapting to an illness or um, overcoming um, a problem at work or, you know, suddenly you're given a disability and you have to make the most of it. So, you know, these hero stories explain to us how to do it. And um, and we we need that in order to go make change for ourselves and for our world. Yeah, it's, I mean, I find this work utterly fascinating. I'm, I'm truly perplexed and, I mean, in a good way, by how powerful this seems and how much what we tell ourselves can affect you know what we're thinking how we're thinking and the way in which we think it um i i just want to thank you for your time where can people find your work your website um my website is uh www.mel-madrona.com and also we have a coyote institute which is www.coyoteinstitute.us. And uh, I can be Googled. I'm in Orono, Maine. And i um, happy to dialogue with people. Great. Uh, Dr. Lewis, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This is The Human Experience. We are going to get out of here. We will see you guys next week.